Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, where we talk about today's digital revolution and the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on the world, has had on all of us as individuals, the business community, and the ways companies are changing and remaking themselves to adapt to this new world. Our guest today is Sean Amirati. His monthly specialty is Amirati on innovation. Sean's a venture capitalist, an author, a serial entrepreneur, professor at Carnegie Mellon University, where he runs the corporate startup lab to help big companies try to think like little fast growing entrepreneurs. Sean, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Thanks for having me, Bob. Good to be here. Good to see you, Sean. Um, so you had a couple thoughts this week about, you know, some of these companies in transition. And in particular, I think some of the ways that Microsoft has been uh, not just nudging some companies along, but really like, uh, you know, propelling them into a new future, Sean. How do you see that shaping up? Yeah, so I think, you know, you had a, you had a post on Cloud Wars Live where you talked about Satya's uh, 10 customers for digital transformation, right? And you went through what I think are kind of unprecedentedly large swings the company's taking to, to reimagine industries, not by themselves, but in partnership with incumbent companies, right? So the point is don't reimagine commerce as Microsoft as a standalone, but reimagine commerce with FedEx and Microsoft together. Don't reimagine content creation with Microsoft as a standalone business, but reimagine content creation as Disney and Microsoft together. And I, I think it's, it's brilliant. I think it actually hits on a point that you and I have talked about a lot over the last uh, number of episodes, which is we've gotten to a point where companies have made 80% of the investment that they needed to in digital transformation but to be blunt, I think they've gotten about 20% of the value from that investment. And the thing is, now we need to make that last 20% investment to realize all the value that they started them down that path on, right? And, and so to me, that kind of last step is what, what um, I've called business model transformation, right? So not just making experiences a little more efficient, not just making uh, your supply chain run a little smoother, but actually completely turning your business on its head with these digital first business models, but taking advantage of the incumbency advantage that each of these companies have. And so I think um, Microsoft has done a really good job doing it. They've done it in a, in a fearless way. I think, I think that's, that's amazing. I think, you know, each of your 10 is interesting, um, but you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the FedEx Microsoft one may be the, the biggest swing of them all. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty remarkable vision. And the thing that jumped out to me on that one is it really doesn't make sense to me that it's Microsoft with all due respect to Microsoft. And it's not that Microsoft's not a fine player here, but if you just step back and said like, okay, who's, what's the tech company that should be partnering with FedEx? to reimagine commerce, I don't think your answer would be Microsoft. Like, like you know, if you, like just, just put the, the 10 largest tech companies on the board and say, which one of these is the likely partner for Microsoft in a vacuum. I find it hard to believe that anybody would say, you know, the right partner 
is Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, the guys who brought you, you know, Office and Windows, that's clearly the company that should reimagine commerce with, with FedEx. And it's not, I mean, I think, I, I, and to be clear, I think Microsoft is a, a different and better company today. And I, I totally understand why they're running this playbook. But let's be honest, part of this comes back to something that also that you and I have talked about, which is Amazon's refusal to spin AWS as a separate entity is 100% the reason that you didn't write a story on Cloud Wars about why AWS and FedEx aren't reinventing commerce, not Microsoft and FedEx are reinventing commerce. And so, you know, again, I feel like we're kind of, we beat this drum a lot, but boy, you can't, this week's news cannot miss the point that the legacy of Amazon, the e-tailer, is absolutely holding back the opportunity that AWS has uh, here. And, I, and if I were, it, you know, nobody, nobody at Amazon has asked me for my opinion, but that will never stop me from sharing it. If I were giving Amazon advice, I mean, the, the obvious answer to me, like, is tomorrow is not soon enough to put the wheels in motion to get this thing as a standalone company because like you're going to end up losing this window because I guarantee you the conversation inside FedEx was like, you know, that's, we're not a big fan of padding the balance sheet of Amazon. Like that, that doesn't feel like a great, a great way. And, and then in comes really great BD focused folks from Microsoft and, and voila, next thing you know, you, you've got a, you've got a different, a different JV on the table. John, that's, it's wild stuff. And I think one of your uh, late December predictions for 2020 was uh, not just a tech matchup between AWS and FedEx, but that you thought that maybe it's time AWS or Amazon buys FedEx. Well, well so I thought, I think it's time for Amazon to spin AWS. And I yep. actually think FedEx becomes a really valuable entity in this space. The company I actually back in December thought would be the most likely acquire, which I still think is true, would be Walmart. Walmart. And, and, and frankly, I think FedEx only looks more interesting to Walmart today. Yeah, sorry for my flub there, Sean. Uh, I just wanted to see, I knew that, of course. I yeah. was waiting to see if you remembered do who I, you Do predicted. I have conviction in that prediction yeah. or not? I appreciate that. <laughs> the conviction of my prediction, yeah. excellent. Hey, Sean, you know, uh, the FedEx thing too is the one that really, uh, you know, I've had this idea about, wow, Microsoft's been racking up these big transformational uh, customers for quite some time here. The one that, you know, sort of flipped the switch in my head, there was the FedEx thing. Of course, it's the, in some ways, the audaciousness of the deal and right. uh, the degree to which it's happening. But the other thing is, you know, I've had the good fortune over the years to have met Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx, a, a, a few times and talking with him about things. You know, he's a, a Marine, he's an entrepreneur, he's run this big business, he's a fantastic guy, but Fred Smith doesn't have to be nice to anybody, and he's not going to be scripted by anybody. And in the video that he did with Sachin Nadella, he very explicitly, very pointedly referred to Microsoft as a partnership. And he said a couple of times, you know, we're honored to be in this partnership. We're, we're so excited about what this means. I think this point in Fred Smith's life and career, he doesn't, you know, uh, just sort of uh, toss out some nice word candy to anybody. So I do think that there's something profound going on here. And he specifically referenced, Sean, the capabilities that Microsoft and Azure are bringing in AI and analytics. So you take that with some of the operational things that FedEx has been accumulating and some of the data they've got and all this. I think it points to that whole thing of 
what you were describing so well and so your overview here is companies being able to take great skills they have combined those with something that really propels them you know just sort of surges them into a next level of capability and potential value and in so doing i think sean what you described there business model transformation can't be overemphasized and turn your business on its head try to do things that weren't possible before out of the playbook not these efficiency things of you know three percent faster and four percent cheaper that's right. I th- that's right. Well, and I think, and I think COVID has become the great accelerator of that reality too, right? You know, I'm spending a lot of time talking to a lot of executives at a lot of companies right now, and, and the message is consistently the same to all of them, which is certainly you need to figure out how to reopen your business. But the much more important question for you to ask yourself right now is how do I reimagine my business, right? And I think when you think about this partnership between FedEx and Microsoft, what you're really seeing on the FedEx side, especially is a reimagining of the business, um, right? This is, you know, this is a hundred percent in my mind. And, and, and I think you're, you're right about Fred at his point in his career. He doesn't have to be nice to anybody. He's his kids and his grandkids and his great grandkids are going to be just fine, no matter what happens with the business at this point. Right. But, but people who are great entrepreneurs like Fred Smith, right, they create because it's, it's what they were wired to do. And, and the, thing I, the thing that I saw and resonated with me as I was watching those videos is you could see the entrepreneur fired up again about, you know, the next hill to reimagine, right? Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's just, that's, that's a model that lots and lots of companies should be sitting in the boardroom trying to do right now. And Sean, from the tech partner side of this, just uh, what you just said about Fred Smith is so true, the excitement he was showing. And then the other player in this, Satya Nadella, by far, I believe this is still true today, the most highly valued company in the world. I believe the most influential enterprise technology company in the world, I think you could make a real strong case that Satya Nadella is, you know, the top CEO in the world. You know, his, his record over six years has just been phenomenal. Yet on this video with a customer, even a, a terrific customer like FedEx and the capabilities and potential that that deal has, Satya Nadella has it, the confidence in himself and he has the type of ego that allows himself to really be the interviewer, the moderator, say, Fred, right. tell us what this is about. Fred, tell us who's going to benefit from this, why this is so exciting. And he doesn't jump in and say, yeah, and we did this and this and this. And they bought. It, it, is, it is a model for a different type of thinking that says your magic plus some of my magic is going to make something that neither of us could ever have been able to do otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. It's he, I mean, so he is absolutely CEO of the decade or, or whatever from, from my perspective. I mean, I think what he's done at Microsoft and the, the way he's, he's turned the, the comp, you know, really turned the company around there is, is absolutely incredible. And certainly if you look at the financial performance of, of, uh, Microsoft over his tenure, like the market has richly rewarded the, the company for that, right? So, so couldn't agree more. But there's a, 
but you're right. There's like a servant leader in attitude when you see him interacting with, with customers here that I think is just, I mean, it's textbook. It's exactly what every organizational behavior professor will tell you is the model of, you know, level five leadership and, and what these, what these executives should strive for. I also think he, you know, his reimagining what partnership really means as one of the tech leaders has been, been absolutely incredible for the industry. So I, I think it's just been absolutely incredible there. On the other hand, like if you, if you think about AWS, like they should be in the mix in this stuff and they're, and they're not. And, and that's not a criticism of Microsoft. Like Microsoft is a hundred percent running the plays that, that are on the field, right? Like, uh, you know, it, you, you take advantage and you do, you execute the strategy that's open to you based on what your competitors are doing. But, but man, if you're Andy, like, don't you want to, like, you should be doing that interview. You know, that should be you and Fred Smith talking. Right. And it's just, I mean, it, it, you know, that's this is not to take anything away from Satya, who I do think is an incredible leader. But like, what would be better for the world right now, bluntly, is if you had a couple of them mixing it up and, and each taking different angles. And if, you know, Microsoft partners with FedEx, so that then, you know, then AWS partners with UPS, and there's real competition there, and they push each other, like, that's what, that's actually, uh, that's actually what should be happening. And frankly, Amazon shareholders would get shares in AWS. They would be richly rewarded for this outcome as well because AWS would be an even more valuable company as a standalone business. I continue to believe that to be the case. Um, but it's coming back to the, the, to the um, Satya point, like it, it really is, it's amazing leadership. He's done, a, he's done an incredible job. And um, I think there will be uh, text, cases written on him for a lot of years into the future here. Sean, if, if those are uh, going to be written, I, you know, there's a couple lines from him that, uh, that I think I would like to suggest that somebody considers these as the way, how do you, how do you size up this guy, Sachin Nadella? Well, one is, uh, it was just about a year ago at the Build Conference when he said, <clears throat> you, know, you talk about ambition, he said, we want Azure to be the world's computer. He said, as you get intelligence out in everything in the world, something has to run that. Why not us? So, uh, and I love ambition. I think that's great. And the vision like that, I think it's terrific. And on the flip side of that, um, in mid-March or early March, when he was first talking about some of the ways that the COVID-19 pandemic had affected Microsoft and the company, he was talking about how everybody has had to uh, remake how they do their work, how they live at home, how they raise their kids and work at home. He said, I have two teenage daughters. And he said, we share an office space. So we have to coordinate our schedules to try to figure out who can do Zoom calls when. And I thought, all right, that might be stretching a little bit. But, uh, but on the flip side, as I learn more about him, maybe that is possible. So a sense of humility, a sense of wild ambition, the servant leader, and, you know, the unbridled champion of excellence, capability, performance, and so on. And I don't doubt that within Amazon, there's a lot of that stuff as well. But as you've described so well here, there, you've got an unnatural uh, reality that exists there right now in AWS doing these things. I, I think that with the 
technical skills that the folks at AWS have, the vision they have, but you just don't see them tied in these transformational stuff, right? Somebody says, wow, I dropped my prices this much and I'm able to do this much faster and more and more of that. So there's really something out of whack there. But Sean, one of the other uh, Microsoft customer things I wanted to ask you about was with Novartis, a very impressive video in there from the Novartis CEO talking about what they've done. But he said, I looked at this notion that to create a new pharmaceutical product, a new drug, a new medication that will save lives, improve lives, more well-being, you know, better for everybody. But he said, we're looking at 10 years and $2 billion. And he said, those were things that the drug industry and the world had just come to uh, to accept and recognize this is inevitable. You can't change that. He said, well, that's not true. He said, and maybe with yesterday's methods, yesterday's tools, yesterday's mindset, we couldn't. But right here, right now, he said, we can change this and we're going to. So it, it, that's the sort of thing you mentioned, right? Turn the thing upside down. You have no more sacred cows or beliefs in these things. Yeah, I mean, my, I, so I thought, I thought the, hey, uh, you know, 10 years, 2 billion is no longer acceptable was a great example of something that I think large established companies need to do all the time, which is take things that are just established as, okay, this is a truth that just must be true, right? Like, oh, you know, uh, it's, it's not 186,000 miles per second, right? That's, it's, it's... That, that's right. This is just, this is ground truth, right? And, and asking, why is that ground truth? Well, is that still, is the world that we live in today still the world that those truths were established in? And certainly, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this AI revolution in general, and that's, to me, that's really the, the, Thing here, right, is that it's this joint AI innovation lab between Microsoft and Novartis. Part of the thing that's interesting about AI is I think it, it's both easy to under and overestimate the impact of AI on it on whatever industry you're in. And you know, this is kind of close to home for me because coming from Carnegie Mellon, you know, we've been doing AI for a long, long time. And I mean, Bob, you know this, like the, the first couple of startups I did were commercializing AI technology, except for we worked really hard to not have people categorize us as AI because back then it was a dirty word, not a, not a feature. But the, the thing is that when you live at Carnegie Mellon, like I did before I started those, you start to think that like the world inside Carnegie Mellon is the, the, world, the way the rest of the world operates too. And, and what happened for both of those startups, and they ended up okay, but what happened in both those cases was we were a little too early because the world hadn't quite caught up. If you think about today, where we are with AI is that you have people both, I think, dramatically under and overestimating the impact of it, right? So you have a lot of executives say things like, well, can't you just sprinkle a little AI on that project? And, and they really don't actually know what, what that means. And, and it's, it's super dangerous. On the other hand, every day, I think the reason they're saying this is because things are happening that are indistinguishable for them between magic and what the intelligent systems are doing. And so I understand how like over time, it's like, wow, I'd like some AI magic over there too, because this is pretty cool. Um, one of the things we've tried to, to do is actually help companies understand what is and is not possible with AI over the last few years at CMU. So 
um, with the exec ed program, I helped create a program for another large healthcare company, which was AI for their business executives, not their technical team who totally understood what we were talking about. But, but we spent time with the engineers and they're like, like we're just getting these crazy requests from our execs and we, you got to help us. And so over, you know, a year we've trained a couple hundred of their senior executives and the quality, the impact of that is so much greater. I think what you're seeing Microsoft do, and I think this is, is brilliant, is actually putting skin in the game and saying, okay, we are one of the world's leaders in this. Our competitors aren't able to do these things for right reasons. So we will step in and we will put skin in the game, do these together, and we will be the, we will be the partner. You bring the domain expertise. We'll help you understand what's possible and what's not. And, and together, we can reimagine these constraints that you've operated in. Because what, one of the things that's true about AI, and it's been true since you know, 2001 when I started my first AI startup, is certain things are easy that look hard, and certain things are hard that look easy. And for most business executives, they can't, that they can't actually distinguish between those two. Now, interestingly, we found like in three days, we can get people pretty conversant in that. But you still need the you still need the expertise and, and the domain expertise, right? And I think what you're seeing Novartis and Microsoft do is together come together and say, okay, for, forget about this being you or us. We're in this together, and we're going to drive this together as a joint innovation lab with real skin in the game from both sides. And I think it's just I think it's incredible, and it'll be fun to see. I mean, healthcare and the pharmaceutical industry. There's a bunch of things that could be magical if we could if we could reimagine those worlds. And I think, you know, Novartis and Microsoft are, a, are an interesting team to, to make that happen. Sean, uh, two other, uh, you know, talking about teams and two entities coming together to do things that neither could do individually. Uh, you wanted to be sure to talk about uh, the collaboration, new level of collaboration between Salesforce and Workday, partners for 15 years since Workday was founded and uh, what they're doing now with work.com and, uh, what Workday is bringing to that as well. Yeah, and, and, and specifically, right, I think if you go to work.com and you look at the site right now, right, I think what you see is something that will feel really great given the world that we live in right now, right, which is, okay, we're going to help you reopen. We're going to do contact tracing. We're going to give you best practices. We're going to help you solve this this. Uh, real challenge of reopening the economy. And, and we're going to sort of model that out for you. And that's, that's great. But the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is I feel like that is almost certainly not the full vision of work.com. I suspect what work.com is really going to become over the next chunk of time here is not simply a tool that a group of people came together and created to do some, some, some you know, basic infrastructure around what it takes to reopen the economy. But again, coming back to something we said earlier, the challenge ultimately is not going to be reopening the economy, it's going to be reimagining the economy. And one of the things that I've spent some time doing is going and reading just a bunch of different uh, academic papers on what's happened coming out of prior recessions. And obviously this recession is different because there's also a pandemic associated with it. So I'm not trying to, 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 to minimize that element of this. But if you're looking at this just through the lens of, okay, here, you know, 
we're, we're in a recession, what happens afterwards? The economists are going to spend a lot of time, rightfully, trying to figure out, okay, is this going to be a V-shaped recession? Is this going to be a U-shaped recession? How long is it going to last? How deep is it going to be? What are policies we can do to, to make that on a, on a macro level better? And that's, those are all important questions. However, I think the more interesting question is on a company-by-company company basis, what happens to each individual company? Because the reality is individual company performance aggregates together to be the economy's performance, mm -hmm. right? And one of the things that's become really fascinating to me, and there's a, there's a bunch of different studies on this, probably the best, um, the best one is actually, was actually done by the current dean of the Harvard Business School, and it's in, uh, it was published in HBR and a bunch of other places as well, but it's, the HBR article is called Roaring Out of a, Roaring Out of a Recession. And what they did is they actually put different companies into these different cohorts. And what you see is that some companies, not surprisingly, don't make it. Some companies kind of struggle through, but eventually come out of it, maybe a little wounded, but at least still surviving. But then what you also see is that a small percentage of them, in aggregate across the past recessions, about 13% of them, they actually come out even stronger than they went in. And there are like pretty understandable things that the companies in that category, that 13% that, that accelerate, not decelerate out of a recession do, right? There, there's ways they handle expense reductions. There's investments they make that, um, that others don't. There's places they pull back, places they push in. And historically, the way we've done this is that consultants or executives at those companies try to figure that out. And you know, roughly 13% of the companies figure that out. I think the really interesting question for this recession is because all of that information is known about all those companies. We have much better and richer data about companies today in a format where you can actually do math on them simply, right? This isn't just an income statement and a balance sheet that you got to manipulate in Excel, right? We have the atomic units of those businesses stored in data today, whether it's your SAP system, your Workday system, your Oracle system, or your Salesforce system, right? It's, it's known today. Can, can you, will these software companies be able to actually have way more than 13% of the companies behave in a way where they could come roaring out of that? And if you did, I mean, that, that completely could change the calculation about uh, individual company performance. And then interestingly, and I think very excitingly, could actually change the, the aggregate economic performance because if you could take that 13% that come roaring out and make it 30%, all of a sudden you've got a much stronger economy by definition because 30% of your companies are thriving. And what happens when 30% of your economy starts, 30% of the companies start thriving, right? They pull the rest of the companies up with them. And so my instinct could be wrong, but my instinct is that work.com is important. It's a great first step. But I think it's, it's, it's really this kind of uh, Trojan horse, if you will, into this, this future of taking the digital information that's been stored atomically in these ERP, human capital management, CRM systems over the last decade. And we've really made massive investments to, to get those working and in the cloud, right, which, which you've covered very well. So it's also not sitting in somebody's you know, data center in their, inside the walls of their company, but it's in the cloud, and saying, okay, can we take that information now and actually 
provide advice to these companies around the right way to operate so that they can be part of this, the, this segment of the, of the economy that actually thrives and reimagines themselves. Interesting. And I, th I think there's just a ton of, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating piece of this. Um, you know, obviously when we did the predictions thing in December, nobody saw a pandemic coming at the time, but you could feel that like the economy was also a little frothy independent of the pandemic we're in. And we talked about how tech at that point will outpace the rest of the economy. And you've certainly seen that, right? The tech companies have grown here, but man, if, if, Enterprise technology companies could unlock this for all of their customers. It, it could be a really fun next 18 months. And, I, and, and you know, I, I am committed to being optimistic on this right now. And that's, to me, the path towards optimism. Yeah, Sean, you know, the, uh, very, very interesting thoughts there. And I, I agree with you about there's a there's a Trojan horse aspect about this. And the thing is called work.com. It's not back to work, uh, something like that. And it's I had think it's been remarkable watching Mark Benioff and Salesforce say, okay, I've been sort of as a company pigeonholed in this category of CRM. I would like to, you know, take as much of that CRM market share as I can, but I'd also like to start moving over this way. So I think it's been fascinating. Benioff continues to insist, no, we're only in CRM. What he does is just expand the definition of what CRM is. Right? 100%. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's wild to see. And um, one of the things, Sean, that uh, Workday CEO Neil Busry said in their earnings call last evening was, that at the end of March, they saw some of their customers using Workday's planning tools were doing 30 times more different planning scenarios than they had ever done before. And he said, that's one of the ways that they're trying to wring a little bit of the uncertainty out of this situation. So that's the type of new tool that you're talking about. If we can, if not see into the future, at least be prepared better for the future going forward. And another executive from Workday, Sean, said, with the collaboration with Salesforce, the Salesforce part of it is gonna take care of the workplace and Workday is gonna take care of the workforce. So interesting uh, ways of doing that. And you, did you ever hear the story about the, um, the ham and the pig that get together and they're gonna start a breakfast diner? No. <laughs> so uh, they shake hands, they say it's a merger, everything's gonna be fine after a while, you know, the the hens laying the eggs, so they've got eggs for breakfast, but the pig <laughs> is finding he's, he's getting smaller and smaller in this, and the, the pig finally realized there's no such thing as a merger of equals, right? So, and so I think that'll be something to watch with the uh, Salesforce and Workday thing, not predicting a merger, but that partnership will have its own way of evolving. Um, yes. Sean, last word on anything from you? No, I mean, I just, I just think, um, you know, we, you know, obviously everybody's, I've been saying this since this all started in March, like first, you got to take care of your, yourself first, and you got to make sure that your, your family's taken care of and all of that. But I do think um, we also, to the extent that you have those things under control, and, if, and certainly some people have sick families, and, and like, it, that's, you know, definitely more important. I don't want to come across as insensitive at all. But, um, you know, if you're in a situation where things are relatively stable on a personal and a, those close to you level, right, I think then the next step is, is this sort of 
um, being, I think you had called it radically generous, right? I think that that's helpful. But I also think we also are at a point where uh, politics aside, the line from the last recession that, that a recession is a terrible thing to waste, like we need to start looking at how do we take this situation that we're all in and use it to make our companies better, stronger, better, you know, more vibrant on the other side of this. Um, because, you know, frankly, we owe it to our employees, we owe it to our customers, we owe it to our shareholders to, to do that. And, uh, and I think that's, that's where we need to start shifting our attention at this point. Sean, that's perfect. Sounds great. And your, uh, your, your colleague in the digital all-star set, Chris Lockhead recently referred to that. He said, the future needs you. That's right. Uh, and we, we've exactly got to be right. ready for it. Well, Sean, thanks so much for, you know, some fantastic thoughts on <clears throat> the unique power of combinations and where things are headed and some of the stuff that you're thinking about as we all try to get a sense of, you know, where things are coming forward here. Always a pleasure to see. And I hope that uh, next month we'll have more reason to uh, both of us have that shared optimism. Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. Thanks to all of you folks as well for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We hope you stay safe and healthy and let's get those 30, 35 million Americans back to work and tens of millions of other people around the world. Great to be with you. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next time.